We'll hear argument first this morning in case 06-1286, Michael Knight, trustee versus the Commissioner of Internal Revenue. Mr. Rubin. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The question in this case is the meaning of a statute that provides that in arriving at a trust or estate's adjusted gross income, amounts are allowable in full if they are, and I quote here from 26 U.S.C. Section 67E, which you can find at the bottom of page 3A of the appendix to the blue brief, quote, costs which are paid or incurred in connection with the administration of the estate or trust and which would not have been incurred if the property were not held in such trust or estate. I'd like to make three broad points. First, when one applies the traditional tools of statutory interpretation, the statute can mean only one thing. Second, would not does not mean could not. The Commissioner's current reading of the statute and the Commissioner's previous readings of the statute are wrong. Indeed, the logic of the Commissioner's position supports us. It acknowledges the distinctive nature of trusts and fiduciary obligation. Finally, our reading makes sense. It is consistent with the treatment of trusts and estates elsewhere in the Code. It puts in place an administrable rule that draws a clear line. And by contrast, the Commissioner has provided no reason at all why Congress would have wanted to subject the fees at issue here to the 2 percent floor. I, I think those, those three points are certainly what would, would help me. Could, could I ask just two preliminary questions? They don't necessarily have to do with this case, just to get something straight. I, I take it that uh, you couldn't have claimed this deduction under 162 without getting into an argument that it should be capitalized, and that's why 212 is in the code? Well, 212 and 162 are, uh, are really sort of uh, two sides of the same coin. Uh, 162 is for costs incurred in a trade or business, and there's no uh, — uh, the trust isn't engaged in a trade or business any more than an individual who invests for the protection of property uh, is in a right. trade or business. 212, by contrast, uh, and the text of 212 uh, can be found in the governor's uh, — the government's brief appendix at uh, 5A. 212 is about — uh, expenditures for the preservation of uh, property and, and for income in that context. So that's why this is a 212, not a 162. My, my other question, background only, perhaps I should ask the government. Uh, are, are 162 expenses subject to the 2 percent ceiling? My recollection is that 162 percent, 162 expenses are not subject to the floor. They're not miscellaneous itemized deductions. Counsel, do you agree that as the taxpayer uh, seeking an exception to a general rule, you have the burden of proof in this case? Uh, no, Your Honor. We think that um, — well, there are really two things built into your question, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, first is the question of who bears the burden of proof in tax cases specifically. And uh, as this Court has made clear, the, this was litigated below on a slightly different theory. The government's theory has changed during the pendency of the litigation. And below they argued that this was a common expense for individuals, yet they introduced no evidence of that. And under United States versus Janus, this Court's decision in that case, they can't — the government is required to come forward with something before assessing tax. But in terms of exceptions and rules, we, we can't think take — I guess it's not judicial notice, but we can't assume that individual investors with several million dollars of liquid assets uh, might hire investment advisors? They might hire investment advisors, Your Honor, but we don't Would think that's — usually the, hire investment advisors? I don't think it's clear that they usually hire investment advisors, but I think the important 
point here in a way is uh, the premise of your question, which is that only certain trusts with certain assets under a test that looked at what the Commissioner used to argue, which is commonality or customariness of a particular expense, only uh, the Commissioner herself now argues that that this test is unmanageable because there, there's difficulty in figuring out what the denominator of the fraction is. Do you mean all people? Is it common among everyone, among taxpayers, among taxpayers with certain assets? Would a $100,000 trust have to be treated differently than a million-dollar trust? Then there's the question of what do you mean by common? You've suggested usually or sometimes might. That's not clear either. And then ultimately there would have to be a trial somewhere to determine whether uh, costs like this are indeed common to whatever standard was articulated. And I think this but is I guess why you'd, you'd concede, wouldn't you, that you're not entitled to uh, all of the investment advice that you received, but perhaps only that that is related to the trust status. In other words, if your investment advisor charges you fifty thousand dollars, and you know ten thousand of it is unique to the trust but 40,000 is the same sort of advice he'd give an individual, you'd only be able to get the 10,000 outside of the 2 percent limit. We think, Your Honor, that all trust investment fees uh, are uh, distinctive, that what renders them distinctive and ren renders them fully deductible under the statute is that they are incurred as a result of distinctive fiduciary obligation. We think the statute draws a line between costs like that that are incurred as a result of distinctive fiduciary obligation, which would include all investment uh, uh, management or advice fees, and, by contrast, costs that inhere in ownership of a particular piece of property, and that any owner of that property would have to pay. Well, I don't, I don't really see that line. I mean, let's, uh, let's take, uh, you know, fixing the roof on a house that's in the trust. Uh, Aren't there distinctive trustee obligations with respect to preservation of property, just as there are with respect to uh, preservation of, uh, of uh, financial assets? Yes, Your Honor. That's a very hard line to draw. Yes, Your Honor. I, I think the line is, is, uh, is actually uh, easier to draw than your question suggests. Uh, I think that uh, fixing a roof on a house might be uh, a cost that is uh, close to the line. It may be that some uh, uh, for example, if there were an ordinance in a community that required upkeep of a house, we think that it would be subject to the 2 percent floor. The archetypal example of a cost that we think Congress intended, and by this language, we believe Congress uh, rendered subject to the 2 percent floor, are the costs of pass-through entities that might be owned by the trust or state. So, for example, if there's an S corporation and its management incurs an expense, that's reported back because the S-Corporation has no independent existence. That's reported back to the owner, individual or trustee, and is reported as an administrative expense. It would be uh, subject to the 2 percent floor if an individual incurred it, and it would have been incurred, which is the language of the statute, whether I'm or still, not it was I'm held still, in such trust or — I'm still trying to get back to my original question. I, I would like to know what you think is not — a, an expense that's distinctive to, uh, uh, to a trust, other than fixing a roof, because you haven't persuaded me on that. I the, think fixing the, a roof is fixing a roof. The, the cost of uh, — a not distinctive cost would be the cost 
incurred by an S corporation owned by the trustee. Anything else? A condo fee, for example, that simply essentially runs with the property. Whoever owns this land is going to have to pay the condo fee. Um, required insurance on a vehicle. Isn't there a trustee obligation to uh, to pay all uh, uh, all expenses, which, if not paid, will would uh, cause a depletion of the assets? It's a question Can't of — Can't you say that that's a trustee response? It, it, I mean, if the criterion is he, he paid this money only to uh, discharge an obligation as a trustee, it seems to me all of, all of his expenses are in that category, with the possible exception of, of the S-corporations you're talking about. Well, Your Honor, the costs are distinctive in the case of, uh, of those things that are caused by fiduciary obligation in the sense that we describe because that's how they're caused. These costs are incurred without regard to that fiduciary obligation. They're paid, uh, uh, perhaps, because of fiduciary obligation, but they are incurred through ownership of the property. And there's a, a, a hint in the text. If you look at the text, you'll note that costs that are paid or incurred are deductible. But this asks about whether they would have been incurred if the property were not held in such trust or estate. But, Mr. Rubin, you were not willing to agree with the chief when he said, well, maybe there are some investment expenses that are special because this is a trust, but there must be some that any investor would incur. But you say it's got to be all one way. Yes, Justice Ginsburg. Trustees cannot under law and do not invest as individuals do. To begin with, they always have to keep their eye on current, future, contingent, and remainder beneficiaries and treat them with equal fairness. But, but they don't have to hire investment advisors. There is a standard that they may think they can meet on their own. They may, you know, it may be an investment advisor that is the trustee, and he, can, he doesn't have to hire somebody else. So it's not something that necessarily inher, in, inheres in the uh, nature of the trust. Whenever a trustee hires an investment advisor, it is to fulfill this fiduciary obligation. Um, it is true that there may be a trustee who is expert in this. Why, if I could pause you on that, why is that the case? Let's say it's a, the trustee understands perfectly his obligations under the law. Just, let's just say he's supposed to preserve capital and invest conservatively. But he wants advice on which is the best conservative investment. You know, is it railroads or is it utilities? And that's the investment advice he seeks. Just that. He says, I know how I'm supposed to invest as a fiduciary, but there are options in there, and I just want advice on the options. Yes, Your Honor. I think that that is uh, actually quite a typical situation. The trustee, of course, knows his or her obligations. It's his or her inability to figure out how to fulfill them. That well, isn't that just like an individual investor? If you have an individual investor with $10 million in liquid assets, he or she might know what he wants to do, either capital appreciation or preservation, you know, whatever the option is, but just wants some advice on how best to go about that. That sounds exactly like the trustee in our hypothetical. Well, Your Honor, there are unique obligations. Some of these are set out in Connecticut statute. This is in our brief at page 7 of the blue brief. There are ten considerations that Connecticut law requires trustees to examine, including 
things unique to trust, the nature of the trust, its duration, the need for liquidity or income versus capital, which is uh, principal growth versus uh, income, is a uniquely trust-like concern. No, no. See, that's my difficulty with your position. It's not uniquely trust, because you certainly have individuals who may want income rather than capital appreciation uh, or you know, preservation of capital. They may have exactly the same objectives as a trustee. It's not unique to the trust. It, it, I guess I have two answers to that, Your Honor. It may by happenstance be that out of the black box of investment advice, an individual by happenstance gets the same advice as a trust somewhere, but it would be by happenstance. The decisional process leading to obtaining the advice, incurring the cost, is distinct for trust, and indeed the advice they receive. Well, it, it is seems distinct. to me that that, that just simply couldn't have been Congress's purpose in passing this statute, because now you have a recipe for avoidance. Uh, most states, California, as a rule, you have to, the trustee has to make prudent business investments. Well, I assume a, a great number of businessmen outside the trust context think that the, they have uh, uh, their principal objective of making prudent business investments. Uh, but under your theory, uh, all expenses uh, for that objective uh, would, 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 would fall within this exclusion. I, I just don't think that's what the Congress could possibly have intended. Well, Your Honor, to begin with, there is no risk here of uh, tax avoidance through creation of a trust. These are non-grantor trusts. There are substantial costs involved in creating them, but among other things, the top bracket of 35 percent. Is that true just in your case? You, no, uni universally, there's never a danger of, of tax avoidance? You, you want us to write the opinion on the assumption that tax avoidance is, 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 is never a problem in the creation of a trust? Well, the Commissioner concedes at page uh, 37 of her brief that there is no substantial problem of income splitting through the use of non-grantor trusts. And is that true? The, I'm, I'm looking at testimony given by uh, J. Roger Mintz uh, in 1986, when this measure was before Congress. And in that written testimony is the statement, first, the treatment of trusts as separate taxpayers with a separate graduated rate schedule can cause income to be taxed at a rate lower than if the grantor had retained direct ownership of the trust assets or given the assets outright to the beneficiaries. So apparently the Treasury was telling the Congress that there is a, a problem. Yes, Justice Ginsburg. That problem was solved in Section 1 of 26 U.S. Code, and this is described at page 37 of our brief, by a compression of the tax brackets. The 35 percent bracket kicks in for non-grantor trusts at $10,500. For an individual, it kicks in at $349,000. As a consequence, there is no incentive to move money into a trust in order to avoid taxation at a, uh, at a lower rate. Excuse me, I, I'm, I'm not sure what you mean by non-grantor trusts. What, what is a non-grantor trust? A non-grantor trust is a real trust with economic substance. A grantor trust is a trust in which the grantor retains certain um, powers, for example, it's revocable or whatever, and it's treated as, as it, people set them up for estate planning purposes, but every, every trust has a grantor, I assume. Yes, 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 but it's, okay, it's, this is a, I guess this is a, a term of art. Trust without any money. But yes. a, a grantor trust would be one of those pass-through. Yes, and indeed, this, I think, uh, in part in answer to Justice Kennedy's question, 
the problem of tax avoidance was dealt with in Section 67C, where entities like that were were said to be treated as pass-through entities with no independent existence. But trusts and estates were accepted specifically from that because of this absence of risk of income splitting. And indeed, we think that the, the, the structure of the statute, not merely its text, but the structure of the statute indicates that this is what Congress intended. It's not, it's not written the way I would have written it, Your Honor, but none of the other readings are textually even supportable. Yeah, and this is a sort of uh, elementary question that makes re- reveal my stupidity, but actually sometimes these costs are incurred by individuals and sometimes they're not. But it, 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 so that you, you would normally think there's going to be a case-by-case analysis of what happened in the particular case. But do I understand correctly that both you and the government take the position that we should apply the same rule across the board regardless of the actual facts? I wouldn't say regardless of the actual facts, Your Honor, but I would say this. We believe it's a categorical test. The first of what the Commissioner calls her textually plausible readings is literally a case-by-case examination of what would have happened with this property if it were held by whomever, the beneficiary or the grantor. It's not clear whom. And as they describe, Congress can't have meant that, and this would be uh, an imponderable. How would that's, you the, that's the most normal reading of the language, is a case-by-case test. It seems to me the, probably the most unwise reading also. <laughs> well, Your Honor, I, I think uh, I, I, I see your point, and I think this is why, if you look at the structure of Section 67, which treats uh, pass-through entities but not trusts and estates as presenting a risk of income splitting. If you look at the code more broadly, which permits deductions by trusts and estates in many circumstances, Section 68 does, Section 154 does, when they're not permitted by individuals, and especially when you look at the the statutory history here. Both houses of Congress — well, this was pre-existing law, I should begin by saying — and then both houses of Congress passed in the 86 Act this statute without the second clause. So, so, uh, I've read the legislative history, mm-hmm. which shows, to me anyway, precisely no light whatsoever. It's the only relevant sentence, which is the third sentence, simply repeats the statute. And therefore, I thought that what Congress is trying to do is say, treat trusts like individuals, except in respect to special expenses. What are special expenses? Those that are related to the trust and that an individual wouldn't have occurred, incurred. Now, I can't say it much more clearly than that, but I have an absolute clear idea what it means. To me, it means that if this is an expense that the trust is saying is special, I would say, would a reasonable person who did not hold these assets in trust, would such a person be likely to make that kind of expenditure? And if the answer to that question is yes, well, then I would say it's not a special expense. And if the answer is no, I would say it was. And then the IRS and you will come and say that isn't precise enough, and I'd say the IRS has plenty of authority in its regs to give lists of examples, which they do in such instances. Now, I'm posing that not because I've bought into it, though I'm tempted to, (laughs) but I'd like to know what your response is. Well, Your Honor, I guess my response is several-fold. To begin with, 
The statute doesn't ask what usually happens on the outside or commonly or customarily. And indeed, the, the Commissioner has abandoned this reading of the statute precisely because it presents the kind of imponderables that, that I was discussing with the Chief Justice. What is usually done? Do trusts of different sizes have different rules? When a trust's assets come below a certain point, what about that? And most importantly, it's not in the text of the statute. Now, the Commissioner concedes the distinctive nature of trust, and if you look at the examples that she gives on page 23 of her brief of what it is that uh, that is deductible in full, it's the same as this, fiduciary income tax preparation. Well, people, many people get income tax preparation for individual income tax returns. The only difference is it's a Form 1040 or a Form 1041. Our case is much further from the line than that because the investment advice must be tailored to these, uh, to these um, rules under Connecticut law. Okay, well then, let's take that. Let's suppose that the trustee goes to an investment advisor, doesn't tell him that he's a trustee, just says, I need to know, I can't decide, should I invest in Union Pacific or CSX? I'm going to invest in a railroad. Which one do you like better? Doesn't tell him he's a trustee. Gets some advice, then gets a bill. Is that subject to the 2 percent floor? Because presumably the advice has got nothing to do with fiduciary responsibilities. If it has nothing to do with fiduciary responsibilities, Your Honor, we think it would be a breach of fiduciary obligation to get, waste the trust money paying for the advice, and to act upon it. So, Oh, no, it's a reasonable — let's say a railroad stock is a reasonable investment for a trust. He just wants to know which one's the best one. We think that this is intended as a categorical rule. And we think that uh, asking that question is in furtherance of these unique obligations and the prudent investor standard, which is not — this is a new standard that's developed in the United States over the last decade or so. It is not merely what a prudent man would do under the old uh, Harvard College v. Amory uh, common law test. Um, investments that individuals can and do invest in are not open to trustees who have a series of rules, some of which are counterintuitive, in fact, about what they can do. And these are listed at pages 7 to 10 of our brief. But th- that's uh, uh, what you're describing, we think, is, an, is investment advice. And if it's properly obtained, it is distinctive. I should say also in response well, — how can it be distinctive if the advisor doesn't even know that the person's a trustee? Well, the question is the decisional process of the trustee. When the trustee calls up uh, anyone, the, the income tax preparer, and says, I'd like to hire you, he doesn't have to say at the moment of hiring it's for a trust. Well, when it's filled He'll out, he knows it's, on form, it out. he knows it's on Form 1041 rather than 1040. He will eventually come to know that the form is different, Your Honor. Yes, but I don't think the subjective knowledge of the person from whom one gets the advice is the question. The question, I think, is textually directed to the incurment of the cost. And I, I should say also in response to part of Justice Breyer's question, the statutory history isn't merely the legislative history. It's the fact that, despite having just the first prong in it when it was passed by both houses of Congress, there was a floor amendment in the Senate on the day that it passed the Senate that dealt with passers. It's the first part of 67C. And the changes made in the conference committee, again, as the commissioner acknowledges at page 37 of her brief, the changes made in conference, including the addition of this, were to deal precisely with how should we deal with pass-throughs and trusts and trust ownership of pass-throughs. There's nothing that I could find anywhere that talked about pass-throughs 
in respect to the special situation of trusts and estates. In the first sentence, it speaks to it in respect to individuals. It all makes sense. And, and what they seem to be saying is just what I said initially. We do agree trusts do have a special claim, but only in respect to special trust expenses. And which are they? They're the ones an individual wouldn't have occur- incurred. And I'll, I'll put a gloss on it, like we do in law. I say a reasonable individual. I say wouldn't reasonably have occur- incurred. And uh, then I leave it up to the IRS to say which are the expenses that an individual would likely incur and which ones he wouldn't likely incur. Now, that runs throughout tax law, doesn't it? That kind of list, what's a necessary expenditure, what isn't. I mean, they do that all the time, don't they? Yes, Your Honor. Regulations, however, have to be uh, both reasonable. I'm not buying into their thing with could. I mean, uh, that isn't my problem. Okay. (laughs) Um, If they drew a list of of what are the distinct trust costs, it would have to include, if it includes fiduciary income tax preparation, or better yet, judicial accountings. Individuals do these in the case of guardianships and so on. This is of the same uh, caliber and at the same level of generality we think would have to be covered. But have they issued a regulation drawing up this list at this point? There's only a proposed regulation, Your Honor, and we believe that because their readings are not textually supportable, are unadministrable, and aren't what Congress intended, that after applying the ordinary tools of statutory construction, there is only one meaning that this text can have. Why is it not administrable, whether you think it's a faithful rendition of the statute is one thing, but this is exactly what Justice Breyer was talking about. It says... These are the things that are special to the trust, and then these are the things that are not. That's what the proposed reg does, right? Yes, Your Honor. It is, uh, it's a little bit of a moving target, but it does say that. It, those are non-exhaustive lists, and the difficulty of allocating these costs, of attributing them to one thing or another, putting in place systems that trustees that charge unitary fees, which is what corporate trustees do, is enormous. And some of this can be seen in the comments, the public comments to the regulation, uh, some excerpts of which are included in the appendix to our reply brief. But this is not a simple test, and indeed the Commissioner essentially concedes that, saying that she would need to have safe harbors or some other unprincipled line because of the difficulty. I'd like to reserve the balance of my time. Thank you, Mr. Rubin. Mr. Miller. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Section 67E creates a narrow exception to the 2 percent floor for costs which would not have been incurred if the property were not held in trust. It wasn't narrow in the beginning, right? uh, That's correct, Your Honor. The the second clause was added uh, uh, in a floor amendment. Initially, uh, Congress had drafted just uh, the which are paid uh, or which are incurred or in paid in connection with the administration of the estate or trust. And then the second clause was added, and that clause demands that the, co- the cost would not have been incurred if the property were not held. This is uh, somewhat of a mystery, the wording of that clause, uh, and since it came in at the very last minute, isn't it appropriate to give it a limited reading rather than your suggestion that this? provision that up until the very end read just administration costs paid or incurred in connection with the administration of the state or trust, period. 
and then there is this add-on, why should we give that an expansive meaning? I think regardless of the timing, Your Honor, Congress chose to enact it, and that choice has to be given effect. And I think when you look at uh, the way that the the section as a whole is set up, uh, 67E, the the first introductory clause, creates the general principle that for purposes of this section, the adjusted gross income of of an estate shall be computed in the same manner as in the case of an individual, uh, except that, and then there's Clause 1. So in in the context of this section, uh, we have a general rule and then an exception. And that ought to be interpreted uh, in light of the the usual principle that uh, exceptions, particularly ambiguous exceptions, should not be construed so as to swallow up uh, the entirety of the rule, which is essentially what uh, petitioners' interpretation would do. Why why do you think that the only uh, instances where the expense would not have occurred are those instances where it could not have occurred. That doesn't strike me as self-evident. I mean, I understand why you do it, so that you can have a nice, clear line, which I am all for. But the line given uh, uh, by by your colleague is just as clear. I don't know why I should accept yours when — I mean, would just does not mean — could, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda. It's, uh, they're different words. Well, there are certainly different words. We're not suggesting that they're synonyms, uh, but we are suggesting that there are contexts in which uh, the word would can carry the same meaning that is also expressed to the word could. For you example, give, give me a context where, where other, other than this statute, where in, in, in common parlance people use would to mean could. Another example would be if I were to say that that glass would not hold more than eight ounces of water, uh, that would mean that it could not hold more than eight ounces of water. No, I don't think it would mean that. (laughs) Glasses. Anything that could not be done, of course, would not be done. But that doesn't mean that the the two words mean the same thing. It's true that one is included within the other, but they don't mean the same thing. That's right. They would, I think that the unadorned use of the word would. But could not happen, would not happen, of course. But it doesn't mean that the, the, the two concepts are not the same. I think when you, when you have the word would, as we do in the statute, that's not qualified in any way. Uh, it's ambiguous in the sense that it can mean uh, definitely would not have been incurred, probably would not have been incurred, uh, customarily or ordinarily would not have been incurred, which is the you, meaning. You didn't think much of this argument before the Second Circuit adopted it, did you? You didn't argue this before the Court of Appeals. We, we, we did not uh, argue it before. So you have a fallback argument. Well, that, that's, that, that's right. Well, now might be a good time to fall back. <laughs> <laughs> before, I mean, we have lots of good examples. I mean, I could have colored my room at home, painted it with light lean green plastic, but I wouldn't have done it. Yeah, I mean, in endless examples. Right. And certainly the, the statute uh, also admits of the reading uh, given to it by the, the Fourth and Federal Circuits, which is that uh, would not have been incurred means uh, customarily or ordinarily uh, would not have been incurred uh, by individuals. If we can rush to the fallback position, uh, w- is it acceptable to have a test that says, would the expense have been incurred if the non-trust business wanted to achieve an objective that the trust wanted to achieve here, fixing the roof? I, I think that, that raises the question of what, what is the relevant comparison group for, for individuals uh, outside of the, the trust. And, and I think the structure of the statute requires us to, to do that. that that's, that's right. And, and uh, 
we, we would suggest that the, the relevant comparison is individuals uh, with, with similar assets, right, because it's, it's in the absence of a trust, not, not if the property did not exist. So you have to look at uh, an individual who held those assets outright, uh, and an individual with those assets uh, trying to achieve those goals might well uh, seek investment advice. Well, you give so, us an example of something that wouldn't fall within the 2 percent floor, the, the cost of preparing and filing a fiduciary income tax return. What is the difference between that and getting fiduciary investment advice? The, the difference Just is because that, it's a different form that's filled out? Well, it, what, is it more expensive to, to fill out a 1041 than to fill out a 1040? It's more expensive because it's an additional cost. If an individual uh, were to hold the property outright, uh, he or she would simply put the income from that property on his own 1040. If, in addition, there's a trust, uh, then the trust has to fill out a 1041. Uh, the trust also has to prepare uh, Form K-1s and send them out uh, both to the beneficiaries and to the IRS, showing the beneficiary's share of the trust income. Uh, and then the individual still has to file uh, 1040. So the existence of the trust has created this whole additional set of uh, filing and reporting. Yeah, but it's the individual who has to file the 1040. Uh, what the trustee is filing is the 1041. And and why why do you place? I was going to ask the same question that Justice Alito did, and that is, why do you place so much significance either in the label, i.e., it's a fiduciary return or in the peculiar fact that it is a fiduciary who is filing that return. Uh, it's, it's a tax return. And, and I think your, the government's argument is that with respect to, to other items that may be disputed, you should regard them at a fairly general level, i.e. investment advice, not fiduciary investment advice. But when you come to the tax return, you don't regard it as a general at a general level. You regard it at a very specific level, i.e., a fiduciary tax return. It seems to me that the government, with respect to the tax return, is doing exactly what it criticizes the taxpayer for doing with respect to investment advice. And I don't understand the distinction. With respect to the tax return, it's not uh, that it's a fiduciary tax return as opposed to an individual tax return. It's that it's an extra tax return that has to be filed. Well, it's the only tax return that the fiduciary has to file. Isn't that correct? The fiduciary files that tax return, and the beneficiary files a 1040. That's right. But if the beneficiary... Well, the, the only return the fiduciary is filing is the 1041. Isn't that right? That's the only... But, but in that... In the system of the beneficiary and the fiduciary, there are two tax returns that have to be filed. Whereas okay. That, I mean, I, I understand that, that that is a factual difference, but I don't understand what it is that makes that a difference in principle. I think the, that that's an extra obligation that would not have been incurred in the absence of a trust. And I think turning to, to the, the case of the uh, investment advice, I think the there's really no level of generality or particularity at which one can look at investment advice such that there's anything unique about trust investment well, advice. Well, can't you ask it in can't, can't, can't you ask uh, this question pointing towards something unique? If the individual investor does a very poor job of managing his investments, all he can ultimately do is cry about it. But if the trustee does a very poor job, the trustee is going to get sued. So that when the trustee asks for uh, an investment advisor's advice, the trustee is addressing an issue that the individual does not have. The trustee wants to be covered. He also, I presume, wants to be a good trustee. 
But he is, in fact, doing something which is, to use your phrase, in addition to what the individual investor would do. He's looking out for somebody else, and he's looking out for himself if the investment goes south. Why isn't that a sufficient difference that is at least comparable to the difference that you talk about in the filing of a fiduciary tax return? It's not a difference because if the individual invests poorly, uh, he'll lose money, and if the and he'll lose his own money. If the fiduciary invests poorly, he may get sued, and the measure of damages in that suit will be the amount of money he lost. So they're both facing the possibility of losing. Yeah, but whether whether he gets socked with damages or not is going to depend in part whether he is covered by an investment uh, advisor's bit of advice, and that is that is a different item in the calculus of liability. He is providing for something that the individual investor does not provide for or need to provide for. Well, the, 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 the standard of conduct that is supposed to govern uh, the fiduciary is the prudent investor rule, which looks at what a reasonable, prudent uh, individual would do in managing his own money. So I think that uh, well, I, I, I have the same problem. I, um, it, it seems to me that it, it is entirely reasonable to say only a trustee can seek investment advice concerning what he should do to fulfill his responsibilities under the trust. Only a trustee can do that. A a private individual might seek investment advice as to how he could maximize the income or or the growth of of the the funds that he has. But uh, only, only a trustee seeks advice as to how he can fulfill his responsibilities under the trust. And you could say that's distinctive. No, no individual would do that because he's not a trustee. But there's no distinction in that case in the, uh, in, in the fee that's charged or in the advice that's given by the investment advisor. In, in either case, somebody goes to the advisor and says, I have the following goals that I want to achieve with this money. It may be my money. It may be a trust money. Uh, and the advisor thinks about those goals and comes up with, with investment advice. And those may, goals may, may be- well be the same advice, but in, but in one case it is, it is advice sought by and given to a trustee, a unique kind of advice. It, it, in, in substance, it may turn out to be the same, but it's not the same advice you, you, you're giving to a private individual. You're saying, here's the trust instrument and here are the ob- objects to be achieved by the trust instrument. And this is the, uh, the advice that, that will best do that. That doesn't happen with an individual. I mean, I, I, but for the fact that the word trust is in there, uh, I, I think the substance uh, of the uh, interaction with the investment advisor uh, is exactly the same. But doesn't your proposed regulation um, concede that there is in investment advisory advice that is unique to, to estates and trusts? Uh, Isn't that what subparagraph C says? Uh, no. So, subparagraph C has uh, two lists, both of which are uh, non-exclusive, uh, a list of items that are u- unique to trusts and a list of items that are not unique to trusts. Uh, in, in the list of items that are uh, not unique to trusts uh, is investing for total return. There is no type of investment why, advice. Why that limitation? If you, if, why wouldn't it say just investment advice, but it's Investing for total return is more limited. I think perhaps because that's most obviously the type of advice that is not unique to trusts. Uh, but but the, regula- the proposed regulation does not identify uh, any kind of advice uh, that is unique to trusts. It doesn't say it's one or the other. So it's not so sure, right? It's sure about 
advice on investing for total return. In other words, the regulation, the proposed regulation, doesn't answer this case of investment advice in general as opposed to advice on investing for total return. You're right that the the regulation in terms of the uh, the enumeration in subsection B is silent on the question of uh, other types of. Can you really slice up advice that way? You know, you ask the advisor, say, you know, which, which, what percentage of your advice was the advice that went to maximizing total return and what percentage went to this other thing? I mean, gee, I don't want to get courts into, into trying to figure that out. I, I th- or I th- private individuals in, or, or, or financial advisors in trying to figure that out. That's just a crazy way to run a tax system, it seems to me. I, I, I think that's right, and that's why I think that the, the uh, despite the fact that uh, investing for total return is the only example given uh, in, in the list, which again is described as not exclusive, I think the best reading of the proposed regulation but is. But that's not all advice. That's just some of the advice, right? Well, what about the rest of it? How do you slice up, you know, oh, now investment advisor? Tell me what percentage of your advice went to the total return and what percentage went to other things. I don't think an investment advisor is going to be able to tell you. I think the best reading of the proposed regulation, and perhaps the service may well clarify this uh, during the rulemaking process, uh, is that all uh, advice is not unique to trusts because there's no type of advice that a trustee could seek uh, that an individual well, They certainly weren't rem- sure about it when they drafted this regulation, proposed regulation. Well, the, I mean, it, it is, uh, it, it's just a proposal again, and they, I think they picked the, what's perhaps the most obvious. But in other example. categories, they express no such limitation. Custody or management of property, not qualified. And then, w- but when you get to Investing, it has that for total return. Everything else, it's got maintenance, repair, insurance. That's that's right. Uh, And there's also a uh, fairly extensive list of uh, non-exclusive, of non-unique products or services, and that does not include any other type of investment advice. So I think uh, one can draw uh, the opposite inference from that list, but. Uh, in any event, it, it, that's something that could be clarified uh, in the rulemaking process. Uh, returning to uh, petitioners. Well, so how does your customary or commonly incurred test work? Let's say you have two trusts, one $10 million, the other 10000 I think an individual with $10 million might well seek investment advice, but an individual with only 10000 might decide it's not worth it. Would you have a different application of the 2 percent rule for those two trusts? I think if the test is whether uh, whether the uh, individuals would, have, would commonly or ordinarily incur that cost, I think one might well uh, look at that, because the comparison would be uh, individuals with similar assets. Uh, and as Your Honor notes, there might be a difference depending on the size. How many, how many individuals do you need? Let's say it's $3 million in the trust, and we think maybe 60 percent of people would hire an investment advisor, 40 percent would think they can do just as well on their own. Is that customarily incurred by individuals? I, I think it, it might well be, and that's, that's, of course, something that the service could uh, clarify. Might, your answer to both questions was might well be, and that's a fairly vague line when it comes to taxes. Well, that, uh, and, and whatever line you, you, you pick, I guarantee you trusts are going to break themselves up into many trusts that fall under the line. The, the, I mean, people aren't stupid. 
the, or even the, worse, advisors are going to break themselves up into different advisors. There's going to be somebody who says, I'm a fiduciary advisor whenever a trustee calls, but I'm a normal advisor when it's an individual. I think the, the difficulty in, in applying uh, that test is one of the reasons why uh, we suggest that the categorical, the, the more categorical approach, which we think is also a permissible reading of the statute, uh, is a preferable one. Uh, but uh, in, in either event, uh, if the test is customarily or ordinarily incurred, uh, it's, it's petitioner's obligation in the tax court uh, to show that they qualified uh, for the exemption from the 2 percent floor. And so it would have been petitioner's burden to show that this was a cost that's not customarily or ordinarily incurred uh, by individuals. What's your best case for that proposition? Your, your colleague resisted the notion that he had the burden. And what's your best case for, for that? It's not a case, but it's the rule. Uh, tax Court Rule 142 uh, places the burden uh, of proof on uh, the, the taxpayer. Uh, petitioner but but I, I thought that rule applied to the applicability of individual exemptions. Here we have a different question. It's, it's how to read an exception to the general rule. Do you have an, a case for the proposition that the taxpayer has the burden in those cases? Uh, you, you said that in your brief, but it, it didn't have a case site with it. No, we, we, we don't have a case, but the rule uh, is, is unqualified in terms of its applicability. It, it doesn't say only on particular issues. Uh, and the case that petitioner cites is the United States against Janus, which is about a, a naked assessment, uh, which is far removed from what we have here. A naked are assessment you, are is — Are we saying on a question of law, the taxpayer has the burden of proof? If it isn't a question of proof, it isn't a question of evidence? Well, no, I, I was referring to, to questions of fact. I, I understood the question to be if the, if the legal test turns on the factual question of uh, what, is it, what is customary or ordinary for individuals — uh, to incur, then on that fact, that would be a factual issue. Well, what would be, that's why I made the suggestion I had earlier. I, I was uh, doubtful about the wisdom of trying to turn this matter into a purely factual one. And so suppose you said, which would come to about the same thing, that an expenditure would be incurred in this instance by someone who didn't hold these assets in trust. What that means is would a re, uh, an investor, not in the trust, not holding it in trust, reasonably have been, or, or a reasonable investor have been likely to make this expenditure? It turns it into a more quasi-legal question where people, and then it's a matter of judgment, which these things do come down to. That's what judges are there for, to judge. And, and thereby we avoid the burden of proof problem. It comes to about the same thing. Is there any objection to it? Well, it's it, the reason not to do it. If that is the test, then, then it's very easy to apply uh, to the case of investment advice, because uh, we know that the trustee's obligation is to act uh, as a reasonable and prudent individual would. And so uh, we know that if, to the extent that the trustee seeks investment advice uh, in pursuance of that obligation, yeah, then that's it would exactly be, of what course, exactly to. right. But there could be trusts. Very big trusts. The children get into fights, trying to split up the assets. Millions is paid on lawyers and investment advisors to see if each share figured 14 different ways is going to earn this money or that money. Now, that kind of thing exists. And there, the investment advisors are likely to be special. So you can't say investment advice is always special or never special. 
Now, again, this seems to me not unknown at this kind of problem to the Internal Revenue Law. And therefore, there tend to be methods of allowing exceptions, of, of putting burdens. I mean, is this case somehow — am I wrong about that? Well, I think to the extent that you're suggesting that uh, the service could be clar- — could clarify uh, the statute through the use of, of regulations, and I, that we certainly agree with that. Uh, the, the service has the ability to resolve some of the ambiguity. I, I'm looking really for a form of words to write that does not use the word could but which gets at what I think the statute was after, which is let them have this no floor for their special stuff, but not for ordinary stuff that others would have incurred regardless. I want to know what form of words. I I, I find it difficult to go beyond the statute, frankly. I think the would would not have occurred is pretty good. Yeah, actually. That's right. That's right. (laughs) The, uh, the, the, The formulation that the service has proposed, of course, is uh, to look at costs that are unique. To if I reject this word could and uniqueness, now what form of word should I write? I, th- I think uh, ordinarily or, or customarily uh, is also a permissible uh, interpretation of You had to choose between that and getting the idea of the reasonable taxpayer who didn't hold this in trust. Which would you choose? I think they're actually very similar uh, inquiries because we expect that the reasonable person is is the ordinary person. So I think in practice, uh, those formulations get you to the. It almost sounds like ordinary and necessary under 162. Uh, well, the the ordinary and necessary under I mean here we're talking about uh, as Mr. Rubin said it's under 212, 212 uh, because it's uh, not in connection with the trader business. Uh, ordinary and necessary. Uh, in that context means simply that it's a uh, it's legitimately connected to the production of income. That's a requirement for it, it to be deductible to me that at all. It the is, is in characterizing the level of generality at which you, ca- you, you describe the cost, not whether it's ordinary or customary or unique. You run into the same problem no matter how you do that, but you have to decide whether you're talking about investment advice or fiduciary investment advice, tax preparation costs or fiduciary tax preparation costs. And what is the formula for making that distinction? I think what, what the service is trying to do in the proposed regulation and what we have suggested is appropriate is uh, simply a, a common-sense, uh, practical uh, approach to that. And there may be uh, some difficult cases at the margin, and that's uh, one of the things that the service And this must be one. The service must think this is one because it was certain about the tax return. This tax return, that doesn't get the subject to the 2 percent, but only this kind of investment advice for total return. So that the service didn't see this as a clear and certain category. I, I, again, I think what the service was doing there was picking out uh, just the most obvious example, but there, there's, there simply is uh, no such thing as fiduciary investment advice. So as how do we deal with this problem until there's a regulation? It may be that if the service issues a regulation and says these fall into one category and these fall into the other, that's to be entitled to deference. But right now we don't have a regulation, right? That, that's, so that's what right. do we do? Well, I, I mean, I, I think what we've suggested, I mean, is that there are two, there are a couple of possible uh, readings of the statute based on the ambiguity in, in the word would. Um, and I think in the absence of 
uh, a regulation. Uh, we're not suggesting that the service's position is entitled uh, to deference under Chevron, but I think some deference to the consistent position uh, of the service since the statute was enacted that uh, investment advice fees are subject to the 2 percent May I ask you the same question I asked your, your adversary? Whether you use the term could or customarily or what, whatever you're formally, the bottom line, as I understand your position, is that these costs will never be deductible. They'll, they'll be deductible, but they'll be I mean, subject to the floor. That, but they will never, but you, you would not say some trusts yes and some trusts no. Well, uh, under, I mean, if the test were customarily or ordinarily, uh, it, it might be the case that a trust could show uh, that given the nature of the assets uh, in it, if it were a but very small trust, for example. case-by-case case analysis of the facts as to whether the, the particular advice would have been sought, whether the advice was by a trustee or by an individual? Well, it's not — we're not suggesting that it's at the level of that particular advice. Um, the question would be — cost of the advice. Right. Uh, what, what, what percentage of the costs incurred by a trust — do you think the investment advice uh, consists of? I mean, it seems to me the main thing a trustee ordinarily does, at least if he's a trustee of, of, of just cash, is to invest it. And it seems to me his, his major expense must must be getting financial advice. Isn't that right? I, I don't know the answer to that. The, uh, well, the service. Imagine that. something else. What else? You know, guess what? What, what other? What other expense could, could even approximate uh, that? One and my follow-up is, is there any — you know, I don't care about legislative history, but some of my colleagues do. Is there any <laughs> — is there any indication that Congress thought it was — it was whacking trusts with this uh, uh, immense new, uh, new tax with respect to their major expenditure? Oh, I expect it must be their major expenditure. To, to take your uh, second question first, uh, the legislative history is silent on specifically uh, what Congress's objective was in Section 67. It didn't bark. But I, I think I think what one can infer from uh, the legislative history of the 86 Act more broadly and from the text of the statute is that Congress wanted uh, property to be treated the same, regardless of whether it was held by an individual outright or held by a trust. So if an individual would incur certain costs uh, if he held the property outright, uh, those, co- those costs shouldn't be able to escape the 2 percent floor simply because the property is placed into a trust. But if the trust, the existence of the trust relationship creates some new or additional costs that would not have existed otherwise, then those are not subject to the 2 percent. You know, floor. a trust is, is, sort of, is sort of like a business. And, and, and deductions that an individual could not take if he were not in a business are perfectly okay for a business. And I don't know why trusts wouldn't be tr- treated the same way. A trust has to get investment advice. True, when it's, uh, when it's an individual getting it, you, you wouldn't allow a deduction. But a trust is different. And, and un- unless Congress is clearer than, than this statute, I, it seems to me that uh, no individual would get trust investment advice. Only a trust can get trust investment advice. 
individuals could get uh, investment, could and do get investment advice uh, that is no different in substance from the advice that a trust might get, and a trust, a trustee might decide that he didn't need uh, investment advice if the trustee uh, is financially sophisticated uh, and doesn't need an advisor. Uh, to go if you get a bill from the investment advisor, it's fifty thousand dollars, and it's broken up. Thirty thousand is general stock picking advice, and twenty percent is specialized fiduciary advice. In other words, they figure out what, what good stocks are that they're pushing these days, and then they go down it and say, well, you're a trustee, you can't buy this, you can't buy that. You would agree, would you agree that the $20,000 is not subject to the 2 percent floor, but the 30000 is? Uh, yes, as we acknowledged in our brief, if the advisor, or, or another example would be if the advisor imposed some extra charge on fiduciary accounts for, uh, for whatever reason, that would be an expense that an individual going to that same advisor could not incur. Uh, or ordinarily but an individual who wanted to maximize income, for example, if the trustee has to maximize income for some of the life beneficiaries or something, an individual could seek that same advice if, if he wanted that particular uh, result from the investment, couldn't he? That, that, that's right. I, I understood the question to refer to the case where uh, the advisor charges some extra fee uh, because the client is a, is a trust. Oh, I didn't understand it to be that. I thought it was going to be that, you know, the the advisor had to figure out we, we need so much for the uh, for the remainder men and so much for the life beneficiaries and so forth. I think you, you don't think that would be enough. Uh, no, no, no. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Miller. Uh, Mr. Rubin, you have four minutes remaining. Trust investment advice is always distinct from the investment advice that's given to individuals, both because of the demanding legal obligations specifying certain uh, factors that have to be taken into account by the trustee in investing, and because of the risk of personal liability. What, what do you have to support that? I, I, I resist accepting that broad proposition. I don't know where to look or who to ask in order to determine its it's truth or falsity. Well, I think, Your Honor, uh, if you look at, uh, at our brief at pages 7 through 10, there's a discussion of the specific legal factors uh, that are uh, codified in Connecticut law in the Uniform and Prudent Investor Act, which does not, uh, as the Commissioner suggested, require people to uh, invest as a prudent individual. But uh, uh, it's a different standard. So, for example, safe investments, conservative investments are not permitted anymore uh, in many circumstances to trustees when an individual could well engage in that kind of investment. Investment in areas that the trustee is familiar with is not adequate to meet this obligation. So the advice really is tailored as a matter of state law and the trust instrument in every case uh, to the trust. But it could also be tailored to an individual with particular circumstances that are similar to that of the trust. So an individual could incur it, an individual with the same amount of money involved probably would incur it. No trust, Your Honor, has exactly the same circumstances as a trust, because trusts always have, by definition, more than one beneficiary. There is always a remainder beneficiary, at least ordinarily uh, there will be. So an individual might have more than one child he wants to provide for, and insofar as a remainder, there may be more than one grandchild. It could be exactly the same an individual could have exactly the same objectives as a trustee. The decision process for the investments will be different in the case of a trustee, though, than for an individual. And a trust, a trust of course, can be multi-generational. This trust will probably last for about 100 years from the time that it was 
that it was initially uh, uh, adopted. I, I should also say, hey, Ruben, is it the advice that's different, or is it is it the inquiry that's different? Both the decision the decision to hire the investment advisor is an exercise of fiduciary judgment, taking into account these. Uh, these factors, and the advice that you're paying for is a different service that's tailored to the trust. This, therefore, the, the Commissioner acknowledges that, that the that trusts are distinct, but, but resists the, the analogy between, for example, fiduciary income tax returns or judicial accountings and other taxes. Mr. Rubin, is there a subcategory of investment advisors who hold themselves out to be fiduciary investment advisors? I believe, Your Honor, there may be uh, specific fees for trust investment that are offered by uh, firms that, that provide investment advice. Whether there are specific advisors who will take only fiduciary clients, uh, I, I, I don't Or even those who advertise themselves as specialists in fiduciary advice. I never heard of them. Maybe there are. Well, I think that this actually points out, Justice Stevens, part of the problem with the Commissioner's position, which is it relies on labels. Uh, the Commissioner as, said it's a common sense. As far as tax return, are, are there accountants that specialize in trust tax returns as opposed to individual or corporate returns? Not that I know of, Your Honor. My sense is that an income tax preparer will be willing to prepare an income tax return for a fiduciary or an individual. I see that my time has expired. Thank you, Mr. Rubin. The case is submitted.